Welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. We are continuing our podcast series from home during the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of the following is a lightly edited version of a policy call we have already held. We will now proceed with the podcast. Welcome to today's macro call. We've been saying for between 2020, it, it certainly is a macro year. ACG Analytics macro report comes out every Tuesday morning, led by Chris Zerwinski, Bart Ustevelt. Chris is our head international analyst. Bart joins us from the Atlantic Council and Moody's uh, Sovereign Risk in London. Also on the phone is John East, our head of research. On the call today, we have our good friend, Larry McDonald, publisher of the Bear Traps Report, not only best-selling author, but keen follower of macro trends on a global basis. With that, I'd like to turn it back over to Chris to lead the discussion. Thanks, David, and thanks, everybody, as always, for joining the call today. First of all, I want to just highlight the positive jobs numbers. They'll obviously be dissected over the coming days, but on their face, they did beat expectations, and I think that that leads me into my first question for John East, our director of research, who is covering very closely phase four discussions for new legislation, relief legislation out of Washington, D.C. John, you know, what's the timeline for the next phase four bill, and do you think that the impact of, you know, positive numbers greater than expected lessens the incentives for Republicans to attach a high dollar amount to that bill? Yes, I think that the, uh, today's jobs report is exactly the type of evidence that Senate Republicans have been waiting on before they come back from the July 4th recess and craft a new bill. But there, there's still negotiations that the Senate will have to have with the Democratic House. And that could mean that Speaker Pelosi gets some of her priorities in exchange for priorities that Senator McConnell has, which includes some type of legal protections for businesses during the pandemic. But it's not clear yet what exactly exactly is going to be in a bill or the level of monetary support. What do you make of some of the president's comments over the last couple of days where he's basically insinuated he supports larger stimulus payments to individuals and also even has made positive comments on a minimum wage increase? You think those are realistic? I thought that the White House is really negotiating in the absence of understanding or maybe caring where the Senate Republican caucus is. That might mean that the White House could cut a bill with Pelosi and put pressure on Senate Republicans to do something in an election year. I don't see evidence of that either. I think the White House is going to wait till Senate Republicans coalesce, and then the White House is going to try to get some of its own priorities in. The president has said in two weeks he's going to have an announcement of about raising the minimum wage. It hasn't been raised for a while, and a lot of President Trump's supporters might be materially advantaged by a raise in the minimum wage. That's one way of getting money out the door that's not keeping people out of the workforce. On the other hand, you have a lot of small businesses that have a lot of fixed costs right now and uncertain liability in the market, so you'd be adding yet another expense to struggling small businesses. There may be a way of crafting minimum wage legislation that helps get around that issue, but we'll see because he just has teased that he may have a proposal in two weeks. David, does that kind of fit into some of what you've been hearing out of Senate Republicans with respect to you know coming to a compromise with Speaker Pelosi and Senator Schumer over the size of a bill in exchange for certain provisions that Republicans really want? 
Yes, I had the opportunity to speak with a U.S. senator yesterday, Republican, on the Senate Banking Committee. He said the number one issue for him was liability protection for businesses. House Democrats have basically called that a no-fly zone for them. Nevertheless, the senator said he was willing to offer more to Nancy Pelosi in order to get it. So that is a passionate concern for, for Republicans. John, uh, you know, is infrastructure still separate from this? Obviously, the House passed its surface transportation bill yesterday, which included funding for other priorities as well. I think it ended up around $1.5 trillion. The White House obviously had talked about passing a bill itself on infrastructure by September. Is this still something that we're watching closely? Well, I'm watching this bill closely for a different reason. This bill, which, which the House Democrats passed yesterday, is really one-third traditional infrastructure, two-thirds Green New Deal. This is really a messaging piece going into the election, and it is a preview for what might pass the House and the Senate with a President Biden if the Democrats have all three. That's what this bill really is. But there is a second infrastructure bill that both the House and Senate have been working on. It's fairly nearing completion, and that is basically half trillion over five-year bill. That's a traditional roads and bridges bill. It's due in September. Congress may not actually be able to pass it in September. They may decide to do a continuing resolution. But the work has been done. Now the White House wants something bigger and closer to the number the Democrats have. Their number is $1.5 trillion. But he's never identified a payment mechanism, and I have not seen a White House proposal. And you simply won't pass something that large through the Republican Senate. If it doesn't do anything that the House Democrats want to do, they're not going to pass that in an election year unless the unemployment rate is still very, very high. But I don't see real leadership from the White House, and all three sides are so far apart. I think one notable aspect of this week's macro forecast was that we increased the odds of the Senate flipping to the Democrats and marginally increased the odds of Vice President Biden winning. Can you touch on that briefly, just entirely too early positioning and in, in what we'd be looking at under a Democratic administration? I understand, obviously, with the caveat that we're five months out still. Polling isn't exactly that accurate this far away, and obviously people are focused on the virus still. I still think the presidential race will tighten, but if you are a Republican, there's been some worrying signs. In Ohio and Iowa, which are two states that have been trending very slightly towards the Republicans over the last few election cycles, look like they're trending back. That may be evidence of some type of wave building. So while I do expect that the races will tighten as we head closer to the election, it may be that the Democrats have just had such a great recruitment that, that they're going to sweep. The Republicans have to defend so many more seats, and there is scandal surrounding the junior senator from North Carolina, and that has nothing to do with him, but has to do with the senior senator, but he may be taken out because of it. Democrats have also won the governorships of several of these swing states over the last two, four years, which makes them more competitive for Democrats because the governor can assist with the the get-out-the-vote effort. John, I did want to ask you, shifting over to China, we obviously are still monitoring U.S.-China relations very closely. Yesterday, we had the House passing a bill that would apply sanctions to certain organizations, individuals responsible for aiding and abetting China in some of its moves to decrease the autonomy of Hong Kong. It was passed with unanimous consent out of the House. Does that mean that it's going to be visited in the Senate quickly and put to the president's desk? 
That is my expectation. The Senate almost passed by unanimous consent a very similar bill last week. And at the last minute, one of its co-sponsors was persuaded by the White House to put a hold on the bill while Treasury could work out some of its concerns. And it looks to me those concerns were reflected in the Hong Kong bill that passed the House yesterday, which was actually only filed yesterday. And so I would anticipate another unanimous consent motion in the Senate to get it to the president. And it does not tie the president's hands so reflexively that he can't offer waivers. The president would still have discretion to set foreign policy, but it does give the president additional powers to use. We did see the administration move to end some of Hong Kong's special economic and trade status this week. However, they only touched some defense exports and they extended export controls to cover dual-use technologies with respect to Hong Kong. That's part of this move in retaliation to China's national security law, which the National People's Congress, NPC, did pass this week. Outside of that, though, often, you know, we talk about these red lines, right? What What is a red line for China in, in relation to the phase one trade agreement? And it's my view that what we've seen so far has not crossed any red lines. What I'm looking for moving forward, which would constitute potentially crossing that red line that China has laid out, would be, one, ending Hong Kong's treatment as a separate customs area. I think that that would be very impactful. Two, I, I'm looking at greater national security review for foreign investments from Hong Kong. And then three, financial sanctions that limit access for Chinese companies and banks to U.S. dollars. I think those would constitute red lines, and it's certainly something that we're watching very closely. Larry, does that kind of constitute what you're thinking, too, on, on the red lines? One of the things that we've laid out, and you guys have been so helpful, it all comes down to the three legs of the dollar stool. And if the U.S. is a sloppy reopening for a number of reasons, it's a lot harder in the United States to control the virus, than a sloppy reopening where the rest of the world and the stimulus is thriving around the world and you have election risk, that weakens the dollar. But on top of that, if you have less fragmentation in Europe and stimulus coming out of China, those are three powerful drivers. So you have the rest of the world with all the stimulus losing around the planet, dollar weakening. Just the, just the last few days, the transports bounced 8% higher, and the dollar only moved, moved down another 1.5%, 2%. So it's really we're looking at those three legs of the dollar soon. We were talking a little bit about that election risk, and I understand that when you're talking about having a play in the financials, that one of the main risks of that is you know how the Democrats would approach that. My own point on that, if you get the Senate flipping to the Democrats and you have a Biden administration, I think that the main risk that I'd be worried on that is that they get boxed in by some progressive legislation out of Congress. I don't necessarily think that Biden's going to choose somebody radically progressive for Treasury Secretary, but the risk there would be legislation coming out of Congress that forces his hand. Bart, I want to bring you in, too, here, because Larry mentioned as part of the stool, a lessening risk of political fragmentation in Europe or easing of political risk. Can you give us a little bit of info and, and an update on the, the efforts from the Bundestag to de-escalate with the ECB? Yeah, thank you, Chris. And I think uh, that's one of the critical things to watch in the in the coming week. So they appear close to resolving that issue that was thrown up by the German Constitutional Court about the proportionality of the ECB actions in its asset purchase program, which was the bond purchase program that preceded the pandemic. There's a separate pandemic-related program that I also still expect to grow. They seem to have found a way around to address the concerns indirectly via the European Parliament. The, the German European parliamentarian sent a note, sent a request for information to the ECB 
the ECD always responds to the European Parliament within two weeks. And he basically asked for the information that the Constitutional Court asked for. And then the Finance Ministry and the Bundestag have been working towards collecting the same information. And it's, it's been handed to them in the form of minutes of meetings of the time when the ECB set up this program. And that appear, I haven't seen them, but they appear to show that there was an active discussion of the proportionality and the potential impact of and, and unattended consequences of running a program like this. So that appears close to resolution. The, the end effect of that would be that the Bundestag would be able to continue contributing to the asset purchase program and, of course, the pandemic-related program. And so the net effect is that the ECB will be in a position to conduct monetary policy and bond purchase programs as it sees fit and as it needs to for the foreseeable future. What these ECB decisions mean, you know, is that it takes the risk out of the market of correlated funding stress. So, you know, Italy runs into problems with the bond market and then other countries in the periphery have a hard time funding themselves and you, you get this market seizing up and the ECB having to step in in a very big way. Two risks that I see, in addition to the obvious one that Larry is often pointing out of Italy's economic news coming out a lot worse in the next few months than, than anticipated, the banks, the markets may temporarily worry less about them, but European banks came out of the global financial and the European debt crisis a lot worse than the U.S. counterparts, a bunch of zombie banks walking around. European regulators are very concerned about this, have loosened requirements, basically anticipating a very difficult fall. So that's one risk. I think the ECB will have to play an active role in that. There was some noise from European policymakers trying to push banks towards a merger, which I don't see how adding one weak bank to another weak bank to create a bigger weak bank is a solution. But the second risk I see is that Europe is reopening tourism corridors. Tourism economy is too important for Italy, Spain, Greece, and the like to be dormant for the summer. So we look at what has happened elsewhere in the world. You're guaranteeing yourself a second wave of the pandemic in the fall. Come fall, I think there'll be you know, a more negative tone about Europe because virus cannot but spread if you reopen borders. When, when you talk about these risks, you obviously have conversations with European policymakers. Are, are they optimistic, though, about the next, let's say, six months of the recovery? They're optimistic about their ability in July to make meaningful progress on the fiscal response. The Commission has proposed the 750 billion euro package. There's a lot of disagreements about you know, how to fund it, what taxes to raise, who needs to contribute what to the common budget, how the money is going to get spent. But they're making significant progress on all those files. I don't think they'll agree to the final program in their meeting mid-July, but they'll come very close and it'll be an, an upbeat summit, is my expectation. The other thing they have to do in the next two weeks, on the 9th, they're going to agree on the next president of the Eurogroup. There's three candidates, and the hope is that that meeting is not too contentious and doesn't raise new tensions among the finance ministers who have already had their difficult meetings this year, which every time it comes back to the markets. On the pandemic program, I think you know what we'll see is a slightly different balance between grants and loans as when it comes out, and a slightly lower amount, but it'll be closer to 750 than to the 500 that the so-called fiscal four are advocating. And when Larry was talking earlier about the three-legged stool contributing to making U.S. dollar assets a little bit less attractive and making the rest of the world relatively more attractive, can you update us on what you're seeing with the heat maps this week and some of the caseload in the rest of the world? And Because I think that's an interesting lens through which to evaluate some of what Larry put forward. Yeah, absolutely. So the heat map, we look at 75 major emerging and frontier markets, different set of countries that we're often talking about on, on this call, though there's some overlap, Mexico and Brazil. The good news there is that the global curve infections appears to be flattening. We look at two-week growth rates of the pandemic, and the two-week growth rate globally of the pandemic has been 28% for three weeks in a row now. 
If that comes down, when we look again on Sunday, the, the global peak may soon be behind us, and that would be good news. That's a function of the growth rate declining in big population countries. So declining in India, it's declining in Bangladesh, it's declining in Pakistan, it's declining in Brazil. So all these countries with a population over 200 million are seeing decline. It's growing rapidly, but in, in smaller countries. That's where we see the, the balance, at least this week, and hopefully that's the trend that continues, because if the world numbers start taking turning corner, I think there's there's some more reason for market optimism. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.